preach his word to you. Hebrews chapter number 9. I'll try to read fairly slowly this morning. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was a golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it, cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances, imposed on them until the time of the Reformation. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, and having obtained eternal redemption for us, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled the unclean, sanctifying it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgression that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took blood of the calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission." It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are a figure of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. 
nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often, he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin into salvation. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sin every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offerings thou wouldst not, but a body thou hast prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and offerings for sins thou wouldst not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He maketh away, taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified with the, through the offering of the blood, uh, sorry, offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sins. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest of the blood, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us, not, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. A very long passage of scripture, but so full of truth. Let's pray. And see where the Lord will take us. Title of this morning's message, The Great High Priest. The Great High Priest. Father, only your spirit can illumine this passage to us. But if he would teach, oh, how our hearts would yearn for thee. Oh, how our love for you would grow if you would but teach us this passage by your spirit. So we ask in the precious name of Jesus Christ that you would do so. 
Amen. The Jews had been slaves in Egypt, not for just a few days, not for just a few weeks, not for just a few months, or even years, but centuries. Over 400 years they had been slaves. No. When we read the Bible, very often we cover ground so quickly that we forget the proximity of time because the stories flow and that 400 years just covered, gets covered right over. But do you know what 400 years means? In 1492, Columbus was on the ocean, right? That's just a little over 500 years ago. And the French and the Spanish were settling the country. Now what's left of that? after 500 years, very little. Think about uh, your forefathers. Most of our ancestors came here in the mid-1800s. So 150, a little over year, years ago, our forefathers came, our particular relatives. How much of left, is left of that culture that your forefathers brought from that country, whether they be Dutch or German? How much is left? And in the next 100 years, how much will be left of that? When you think in proximity of 400 years, things have been lost here. They went down to Egypt, just a few. When they came out, there were millions of them. But they had been in Egypt for 400 years. Think about what had changed in their life. Their 400 years of Egyptian culture had had its effect on them. And in the next few years, we will see some very strange things happening with the children of Israel. We're like, where did that come from? Well, it was that they learned in Egypt after 400 years of that culture. Now, to remove the false ideas about life and about true, the true nature of religion, God puts certain things in place. He's trying to pull them out of that thinking they've had for 400 years and put in the correct thinking. So they, he gives things like the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law, and the tabernacle. Now think about this building of the tabernacle. When you build a building, if you've ever built a building before, okay, and on a large scale, you have this idea for a building. And you get this idea and you go to an architect and you communicate your thoughts on this building that you want. The architect, he takes your ideas and then he puts his own ideas into this to try to figure out what you wanted and make it, but he adds his own ideas in with it as well. Then the, each one of the builders who construct this, they go by the blueprints, but they have their own construction methods and their own way of doing things that they add to this. And so when the building's all said and done, it's only partially the owner's as far as its makeup goes. You understand that? Not so with the tabernacle. When God gave the, the, the idea of the tabernacle, he didn't just say to Moses, go build a, a tent that we can carry around to worship in and make it so big. He didn't give him generics. He gave him specifics. In fact, uh, Moses is told in the book of Exodus, uh, let me see if I can find it here, that in, actually in Hebrews 8, it's refreshed in our mind in Hebrews 8, the chapter before, Moses is told by God, make sure that everything is made 
according to the, pot, the pattern that I gave you up in the mountain. When I gave you it, make sure that everything is made this way. The plans of the tabernacle were very specific. And we won't go into all those details this morning. But we do have a brief overview. Look at verse number 9. Oh, sorry, chapter number 9, verse number 2. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, meaning the first chamber, wherein was the candlestick, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of alls, which had a golden censer, the ark of the covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, showing the, shadowing the mercy seat, which we cannot speak particularly. Here we have, if you're not familiar with the tabernacle, you have this tent, this movable building, the tent. It has two sections in it. The first section that when you walked into, the first section of it has, it has a candlestick in there, it has a table, and it has the showbread. There's a second room to this, but it's divided in the middle of this, a little beyond the middle, by a very thick curtain. This second room is a two-room tent, if you will. The second room is divided by a thick curtain called the veil. And behind that veil is a second room called the Holy of Holies. In there is the golden center and the Ark of the Covenant as the mercy seat. A system of offering and sacrifices for sin was set up. The tabernacle is where people brought their offerings for sin, their sacrifices. This building, this movable tent, is where they brought these things. The tribe of Levi was established as the priest, and Aaron was the first high priest. Now, the sacrifice and the offerings were a daily thing, and the priest dealt with those. But according to this passage, one time per year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would go behind that thick curtain. He would have a blood of an animal that had been sacrificed, and he would sprinkle blood on that mercy seat. We see this in verse number 6 and 7. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the services of God... But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. Try to get this picture in your mind of what's taking place here. It's that time of year again. The high priest, they have this spotless lamb, this lamb that's been watched. They sacrifice this lamb. The high priest has on this very specific robe that he's supposed to wear with a breastplate on it. It's very specific. He has washed himself. He is ready to go. He is given a bowl of the blood of this animal that has been sacrificed. Can you see him as he slips around the edge of this very thick curtain between the side wall and this curtain? He slips around the edge of this all by himself. He goes behind there and he sprinkles that blood on that mercy seat. And then he slips back around that curtain, the edge of that curtain, and leaves that, the Holy of Holies. He breathes a sigh of relief. Wouldn't you breathe a sigh of relief after you got out from behind there? He breathes a sigh of relief because 
This is done for this year. This sacrifice has been done. But you know what I also think? I think they breathe the sigh of frustration. Because we did it again. And we got to do it again next year because what we're doing isn't right. You say, wait a second. What we're doing isn't enough. All the rest of the people knew this as well. What did they know? They knew that it wasn't right. Well, what's not right about it? Well, I'll tell you what's not right about it. The place isn't right. Sure, they have this tent that God gave them, told them what to make, and Moses put it together. They have this big tent that they moved around for 40 years. They took it into Canaan when they went. They, they used this tent all through the book of Judges. They used this tent, this tabernacle with King Saul. They used this tabernacle with King David. In Solomon's day, they replaced it with a, the, the tent with the temple, which is arguably square, by square foot the most expensive building ever built. Everything overlaid with gold. But still, all this is a man-made material, an earthly building. Our sin is against heaven, against God himself. Trying to settle your sin debt in a man-made tent is like being accused of murder and trying to settle that in Judge Judy's court. It's not on the right plane. It's not the right place to do this. And to try to settle your sin debt in some man-made tent, you're in the wrong place. It can't be done. And as they're doing this, they have to know, this just isn't right. Our sin is against God. And we're trying to take care of this in a man-made building. The place isn't right. Number two, the priest isn't right. The priest isn't right. Now, don't make a mistake here. In my Bible class on Tuesday, we were talking about this, about a subject that involved this, and I asked him, is there a difference, is there any similarities between pastors and priests, the priests of the Old Testament? And there was some confusion to that. As they were trying to think through, because some of them never even thought about it before, is there any similarities between the pastor of a church, and the priest of the Old Testament. My friend, there is almost no similarity whatsoever. They both start with the letter P. That'll give them that. That's about the size of it. A pastor is someone who preaches the Word of God and tries to help people in their walk with God. A priest, on the other hand, was a go-between. You must go to the priest and, give, and let him sacrifice these things and offer to God. He was a go-between. You couldn't go yourself, my friend. The pastor is not your go-between. There is no similarities at all here. The priest was a go-between, and you would bring your sacrifice, and he would take them to God. Think of the frustration of the people. The priest represented them to God. But what kind of men were the priests? Jason mentioned it in Sunday school this morning. I have it in my notes here. Aaron, 
He was the first high priest. Then you have this whole golden calf incident. You're like, what is up with that? Some of the men were good men. Samuel was a good man, a good priest. But Eli was priest before him. And know what the Bible says about his kids? They were vile, it said. Samuel's kids were rotten themselves. In throughout the scriptures, do you have good priests and you have priests that are not good? Jeremiah, no, sorry, Jeroboam made priests of the lowest of the people. Now, think about how frustrating that would be. You know you sin, so you bring this offering for sin. And you give it to this guy who may be committing worse sin than you at that moment. And he's your representative to God? Think about how frustrating that would be. He's my go-between, and he isn't right with God. This would be extremely frustrating. Think about it from the priest's standpoint. You've got your bowl of blood, and you've got to go behind that curtain. But they're just men. He knows his own failures. He knows the fickleness of his own heart. He knows how he has missed the mark himself. And now he's going behind there for the people. You know what it said about it? He had to offer first the blood for himself and then for the people. And everybody had to look at this and say, this just isn't right. The place isn't right. The priest isn't right. You say, well, it wasn't about them. It was actually about the blood. True, but the blood wasn't right either. Sure, it was a blood of a bull or a goat. Sure, they had killed this, this animal in the manner prescribed. True, the high priest had taken it and sprinkled it on the mercy seat like it was supposed to. But to what avail? What did that do? He had done the prescription, but what did it do? The wages of sin is death. That is the law of God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But did anyone actually think that the sacrificing of a lamb would deal with, a, with man's sin against God? Can I incarcerate my dog to serve my prison sentence? It doesn't work that way. The blood is not right. Hebrews 10, look at 10, verse number 4. This is as clear as it gets. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Can it get any clearer than that? They're offering this, but it's not right. The place isn't right. The priest isn't right. The blood isn't right. And number four, the outcome isn't right. The outcome isn't right. Envision that high priest. He sprinkles that blood on the mercy seat. He slips back around that curtain. As he's walking out of the, the, the tabernacle, he looks over his shoulder. You know what's still there? The veil. That curtain is still there. That barrier between him and God, between everybody and God, that veil is still there. He has just done the sacrifice, and that veil is still between him and God. 
He's barred for another year. He can't even go back there. Nobody else can go ever, but he can't even go back there until next year. And if he lives that long, he'll only be back there a few moments next year. The outcome is not right here. The barrier is still there. Think of the frustration of all of this. They knew that they had sinned against God. So you send your sacrifice, but the place isn't right, the priest isn't right, the sacrifice isn't right, and when it's all said and done, there's a veil still standing between. The sin actually hasn't been dealt with. Look at verse number 3. But in those verse chapter ten. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. It's a remembrance, a recognition of the sin piling up. Think of it in these terms: You go to your mailbox, you pull out an envelope, and it's from the credit card company. It's got a list of all the things you charged this this month. The bill is at the bottom, the total. And you don't have any money to pay that. So you write the credit card company and you say, these are all legitimate charges. Yes, I did spend all of that, but I don't have a dime to pay you right now. So I recognize the charges, but I'm not paying anything on it. The next month your statement comes. Is it blank? No, it has all the charges for this month, this current month plus all the charges from the month before, and still you don't have anything to pay. So you write the credit card company again and say, yes, all this month are legitimate charges, and no, I don't have anything to pay on this. And the balance is now larger, because now it's an added balance. And each month you do this, and each month you still don't have anything to pay, and each month the debt gets larger and larger and larger. You're reminded of it, and you agree with it that these are all legitimate charges, but you don't have anything to pay. And the frustration starts to build in your world because I don't know how I'm going to do this. This is exactly what was taking place. They went to offer that sacrifice once a year as a remembrance. Yes, our charges, our sins are piling up. And no, we don't have anything to pay for them. There's nothing we can pay. But we recognize our sin debt is piling up. Think about how frustrating that would be the wall of debt just keeps growing. But you know, none of us have to try to imagine the frustration of the Jews. For all of us in this room have experienced this exact same thing. I don't think there's any Jewish people here, but we all have our own sin debt. We've all tried to offset this with good deeds or other religious activity, but our sin is against God. So we're dealing in the wrong place by trying to do good to others or some religious... We're dealing in the wrong... It's the wrong place to deal with it. We try to deal with our sin on our own or maybe through some other man we may try, but we know our own failures, our own... And we suspect the failures of those who we're trying to have deal with these things for us. We understand we just aren't the right people to do this. We offer what we have money or time or sincerity, but the law requires blood. And what we offer God is not right. 
We've been offering all of these things, and it's just not right. The place isn't right. We're not right. The offering isn't right. And the outcome is a sin debt that is so large, there is no way that we could ever pay it off. We haven't paid anything on it yet. And the balance just keeps growing. Everyone here has known that frustration. Some may know it at this very moment. You may be feeling that frustration at this very moment. But most in this room are not frustrated any longer. You say, what? (laughs) Why, Why aren't you frustrated any longer? Because we understood that the tabernacle was only a picture, an illustration that God set up to show us how sin would be dealt with. Look at verse number 1 of chapter number 10. For the law, talking about all the sacrificing, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. The tabernacle was only a picture There is no frustration in our lives any longer because we have the great high priest, Jesus Christ. In him we find the fulfillment of the tabernacle picture. In him we find the right sacrifice for sin. Let's take a moment and marvel at all of this. He offers the blood in the right place. Look at chapter number 9, verse number 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Christ did not appear in some tent. He didn't go put, do the sacrifice. He didn't go appear in this tent made with hands that was being moved from place to place. He didn't go into some man-made building. The temple and the tabernacle were only illustrations of truth. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, took the offering to God the Father. He wasn't dealing in some lower court, but in heaven itself. He offered the sacrifice in the right place, the place where it needed to be offered. It was the right place. But not only that, the priest is right. Look at verse number 11. Chapter number 10, verse number 11. Sorry, chapter number 9, verse 11. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, hath not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. He has become the great high priest. Now think about this. Can you think of a better priest to have? Can you think of a better priest than Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God? Jesus Christ, the one who was tempted at all points like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ, whom God the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Can you think of anybody better to represent you before God the Father 
than Jesus Christ. The place is right. He offers this in heaven. The priest is right. It's Jesus Christ the righteous. And the sacrifice is right. The Old Testament priest went into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled the blood of a lamb on the mercy seat. But look at verse number 12. Let the full import of these verses sink in. Verse number 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled the unclean sanctifying to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works. Drop down to verse number 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are a figure of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he have often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. My friend, the blood of a spotless lamb was sprinkled on the mercy seat. It was the blood of the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He offered His own blood as a sacrifice for us. The place is right. The priest is right. The sacrifice is right. And the outcome is right. The outcome is right. When that Old Testament priest left the Holy of Holies, after he he did his sprinkling of his blood. He looks back over his shoulder and that veil is still there. Think about how many times this took place. The curtain is still there. No access to God. Another year of separation. Another year of sin on the books. Another year of sacrificing. How many years? How many centuries? How many thousands of times did a priest not leave the Holy of Holies with that barrier still in place? Think of that. But my friends, there is such good news. For when Jesus Christ offered Himself as a sacrifice for sin, while He's hanging on the cross, the last words that He said was, it is finished. And at that moment, something happened. That veil in that temple that had stood for so many thousands of years was torn from the top to the bottom. And when I'm at Meyer Hall, I teach a very similar lesson to this, and I always ask the kids, why did God tear that veil? Because it was torn from the top, so it had to been God. Why did God tear that veil in half? And the invariable, one of the kids will answer, because God was mad. They just killed his son, and he was mad. My friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. God the Father tore that veil that had stood there for all of that time because it was no longer needed. 
There was nothing that had to separate man from God any longer. The blood of Jesus Christ, that righteous lamb, was sprinkled on that mercy seat, and the veil was no longer needed. What kept us from God was dealt with at the cross. Your sin and my sin was dealt in full. And God the Father said, there's no more barriers between us. This is an amazing day. And the reason is because the place was right. The priest was right. The sacrifice is right. Therefore, the outcome is right. The blood of Jesus Christ settled the debt. And when he offered his blood, he didn't have to slip around the outside edge of that veil. That veil was no longer there. Access to God is now full and free. We do not have to be separated from God any longer. Hebrews chapter number 10, look at verse number 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. We sing a song here, once for all. Free from the law, O oh happy condition. Jesus has bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, grace hath redeemed us once for all. Once for all, O oh sinner, be, receive it. Once for all, O oh brother, believe it. Cling to the cross, your burden will fall. Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Amazing words. In that there's interesting, there's the song takes two different challenges in two different ways. One it says, once for all, O sinner, receive it. May I encourage you to do that today? If you've been trying to settle your sin debt in some other way other than the person of Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, you're not, you're not offering the right thing. You're not the one to offer it. But God the Father has already accepted what Jesus Christ did in your place. And I would beg you this morning to receive what he has done. Cling to the cross and your burden will fall, for Christ hath redeemed us once for all. May I encourage you this morning to trust the finished work of Jesus Christ. The other way we're encouraged is, oh brother, believe it. Christian, do you believe this? Do you honestly believe what took place here? Look at verse number 19. Chapter number 10, verse number 19. Having therefore, brethren... Boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. When that veil stood there, who here would have had the audacity to slide behind that veil into the holiest of holies? 
And not one person here, I don't think, would have had the audacity to say, I'm going in there. I'm not the high priest, but I'm going behind that veil. None of us would have that audacity. But now that that veil has been torn, we have, the word is bold. Bold access to God. Now don't mistake that, it's not brash access to God. It's not a flippant access to God. It's not a, well, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do and then come into God. It's not that. But it is bold access. Don't come offering your sacrifices of your own works. Don't offer your own self-righteousness. Come in the blood of Jesus Christ. That is your righteousness. And you have bold access to God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. If the way has been made open, why, as we be, why would we as believers not take full advantage of the bold access that we have to God? Why would we sit on the fringe? Why would we act like that barrier is still there when we have bold access through the blood of Jesus Christ? My friend, the way has been opened the right place, the right priest, the right sacrifice with the right outcome because we have a great high priest.